Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to the first episode of season two of Que Pasa, HSIs. I can't thank you enough for the love and support for the podcast. Mil gracias. We have been downloaded over 5,000 times and continue to gain followers who are trying to figure out how to enact and research servingness. The podcast is for HSI practitioners and scholars, and I am honored to deliver this HSI knowledge through this platform. Many of you have expressed admiration for the conversations that are had on the podcast as we come at you real. Big shout out to Alan A.C. Williams for all the behind the scenes production work. He does all the editing, but much of the content is raw and uncut. I hope you all can appreciate that this is grassroots efforts. I also want to shout out Estefania Toledo for promoting the show on our social media platforms. Be sure to follow us on at Que Pasa HSIs. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Blanca E. Vega, Assistant Professor of Higher Education at Montclair State University, about a variety of important topics for HSIs to consider, including perceptions of racial conflict in HSIs, complicating Latinidad in HSIs, and supporting undocumented students in HSIs. Dr. Vega's scholarship broadly focuses on the role of higher education and student affairs administrators in building more equitable environments and how racism impacts higher education experiences and success, not just for students, but also for administrators and faculty. She also studies perceptions of racial conflict, the role of racialized ideologies in racial conflict, and policies related to racial conflict, as well as leadership and policy making concerning undocumented students, Latinidad in higher education, and HSIs as racialized organizations. Born and raised in New York City, Dr. Vega is the daughter of Ecuadorian immigrants. She earned an EDD from the higher ed and post-secondary education program at Teachers College, Columbia University. Prior to becoming a professor, she worked in various administrative positions within higher education, spanning over 16 years, including financial aid counseling and directing New York State opportunity programs, such as the Liberty Partnerships Program, LPP, and the Higher Education Opportunity Program, HEOP. Dr. Vega earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in Anthropology from Brandeis University and a Master of Arts in Higher Education at New York University. I have known Dr. Vega for many years since we were doctoral students attending the Association for the Study of Higher Education's annual conference. I'll never forget the feeling of admiration and respect that I had when I first met her, as she's a brilliant and powerful force. I have followed her journey into the prof professoriate, and I am honored to be her friend, colleague, and mentor. I served as a guest editor for her article in AERA Open entitled Hispanic Servant Institutions as Racialized Organizations. Elevating Intersectional Consciousness to Reframe the H in HSIs, which is available in the show notes. You can follow her on social media to learn more about her research and about the topics we explore in this episode. 
All righty then, let's go ahead and get into the show. Doctora Vega, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we get into talking about HSIs, we like to talk about you and hear a little bit about you. So let's start first. Um, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, yourself and your educational journey and how you came to be um, who you are today. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's a real honor. And I'm also really grateful, you know, to have this opportunity to speak with you about HSIs or what I've learned, you know, my journey in higher ed. Um, well, and I should say that my origin story in higher ed really begins in 1968. And I promise this isn't going to be a long story, but I feel like if I don't mention this, um, you know, it's just, yeah, it would just be negating a big part of my story. but. Uh, my father, uh, his name is Miguel Vega. He uh, immigrated from Ecuador in 1968. Um, and um, yeah, he immigrated from Ecuador to New York City. About a few weeks after his arrival, he asked a friend to help him, you know, navigate the train system. And if anybody's been to New York, you know, it, it takes a while to learn the train system, like the numbers, the letters, where is it going? Um and so, you know, he, his friend offered to teach him, but at some point they lost each other. And so my father ended up in Manhattan, somewhere in Manhattan on the one train. Um, and he decided it was getting late, he said, and, and um, he decided to get off, right, um, on 110th Street on the one train. So that's by like Columbia University. Uh, Columbia University is on 116th Street um, and Broadway. So, you know, it was nighttime, so he had to find lodging, um, he found something, and then probably he said the next morning he did what he usually does, which is walk around to see where he's at, uh, and as he was walking north, you know, he found a hospital, St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, where I ended up being born, um, and then a few blocks down from that was Columbia University, and he said, you know, then that this is a place where he wanted to, to stay. Um, most Ecuadorians live in Queens, Queens, New York. In fact, um, a lot of Ecuadorian researchers and writers call Queens the third largest city of Ecuador after Quito and Guayaquil. Um, but he ended up in Manhattan because he saw these two wonderful institutions, right? Um, and he knew that Columbia University, that living that close to Columbia University would um, inspire us, his children to go to college, right? Like, I, I don't know how my father, like when I tell you that my dad grew up on a farm in Ecuador, you know, and at nine years old, left that farm to work, right? And to have that kind of thinking like, oh, like, and I don't know if anybody knows what New York was like in the 60s and 70s and 80s, but it was not fun, right? Um, but he was like, no, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to learn to, you know, find a job at the hospital, which he did as a maintenance worker and a, and a boiler room operator. Um, and he took English classes at Columbia. So, you know, for us and in New York, you know, that was like the only green spot besides Central Park and Riverside Park, which we were sandwiched between. So my dad um, thought that it was, and you know, it wasn't for him. He was like, I can't take my girls to the parks all the time it looked safe at Columbia because they have security guards and all of that. So he took us there all the time. And if you know the image of Columbia, there's like those iconic, that iconic mis uh, image of the steps and the alma mater. 
but he would sit us down there and he would talk to us about like, I couldn't go to college, but all of you can, you can come here. Um, and, you know, of course that led me to desiring, you know, a, um, a place right in higher ed. Um, but, but, you know, as I was growing up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, back then it was called West Harlem, um, but they moved that up because of, uh, moved that down because of gentrification. Um, you know, what I noticed was that, you know, I didn't look like the kids who went to Columbia, right? So we would go to the diners, we would go to the campus, and I started noticing that the white kids were wearing the Columbia sweatshirts. And the kids who look like me or my or look like my dad were wearing maintenance uniforms, right? That there's like the green maintenance uniform. I have a picture of my dad in it from a long time ago. And you know, and it just started, and this was when I was little, like this was like six, seven, eight years old. I was starting to notice these differences. Like, and you know, when my friends, you know, parents, they were working at the hospital, working at the at Columbia, but none of us actually attended Columbia, right? We didn't know anybody who attended Columbia. Um, and so that's really when my ideas of stratification, of racial stratification, um, of racialization really started for me, um, was just, you know, the idea of that resources were attached to what I looked like. I wasn't wearing, and people who I knew were not wearing the Columbia sweatshirts. We were wearing the green uniforms. We were wearing, you know, our parents like green maintenance uniforms. Um, you know, and, and being Ecuadorian, you know, in New York in the seventies and eighties also meant that I was not, was the, was the only one, right? Like, you know, like I had just said, you know, in Ecuadorians typically um, lived and resided in Queens, which is another borough of New York, not in Manhattan. And my father would say that, you know, that back in the day, um, you would be lucky if you ran into an Ecuadorian once every three months, right? Like he was like, and we all knew each other. Like my father made sure it was his like thing to like get to know who were the other Ecuadorians in the, in the community. So we never saw the Ecuadorian flag raised. We never heard of a parade. You know, we didn't hear our music blasting. We had maybe one show on Saturday mornings that were blasted in Radio Wado, which is like the, the Spanish language um, um, station. And my family was committed. We were listening to Radio Wado on Saturday mornings to listen to our Ecuadorian music, right? Um, and But it was only in my little two bedroom apartment, you know, on 108th Street in Amsterdam that, you know, that I even encountered Ecuadorianness, right? Um, outside of my neighborhood, um, and in the Columbia University neighborhood, you know, I really was, uh, I lived in, in an Afro-Latino, what we would call Afro-Latino neighborhood today. Um, the neighborhood was predominantly um, Black, um, uh, you know, Black Latinos, Dominicans, Haitians. Um, I didn't even grow up with Puerto Rican um, people, right? Where we lived was heavily Dominican. Um, and so I, you know, grew up in a, in a very interesting, I think, Latino experience where, um, you know, I knew I was not Black, but I also knew that I was a cousin, right? 
um, and, and that I was family. And so whenever people ask me about like, why am I so committed to understanding, you know, to being in community with black people, I'm always like, well, how can I not be, you know, that's family. Like, you know, like, why would he, why would I even be asked such a question? Um, because yeah, you know, like it's, it, it and, you know, also, you know, my upbringing, you know, I was never identified even within my family, you know, as, as a white Latina, right. I was immediately identified by family members as what we would call samba, sambita, right. And, with, and so in, in English, you know, and in, and in U.S. history, that has a particular negative history, right. Um, but what I didn't understand and know, and this is somewhat reflected in, in the paper that we wrote for, um, you know, for ARA Open for your special issue, you know, was that uh, the Sambo Nation, you know, was really began in the 1500s, you know, from marooned enslaved Africans who rebelled, right, against, you know, their slave masters, right? Um, and they built a society of Afro-Indigenous people, right? Um, it was then used against people, right, as a way to um, as a way to insult Ecuadorians, right? And so that history was also very squashed um, because, you know, as all histories are of, you know, rebellious African enslaved people. Right, that story gets lost. That story gets denied. That story gets maligned, um, and certainly that was the way that it was used against me as a little girl. When somebody was calling me Sambita, it wasn't necessarily the most positive thing, but it was to like, immediately identify that I was not white. I wasn't black, but she not white, right? And right. that's how right. it was. That's how it was really like put together my racialization, my growing up in higher ed my growing up Ecuadorian in higher ed really like really began those, those ideas, those thoughts. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for sharing that story. It's a beautiful story that I, I've never heard. I love learning about people in this podcast. Um, <laughs> and for also, you know, getting into what a lot of your scholarship is, is about complicating what we know about Latinidad and about what it means to be Hispanic, Latino, Latinx in this country. Right. Um, Cause I would assume that you probably for most of your life, because you're from New York and a Latina, people probably thought you were Puerto Rican or Dominican, right? Like there's not a lot of complication where we, we see very monolithically, unfortunately. So I love that you're complicating what that means for us and, and sharing your story, you know, through your story. Um, so I, I, I love the idea about like, um, that you immediately could see, I don't love it, but that you were mm -hmm. so critical, you could immediately see that like white people wear Columbia sweatshirts and my people were the maintenance, you know, um, stuff. So tell us a little bit more about college then. How did you come to know that you could go to college? Tell us about your college journey and how you actually wound up now a professor even. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I still think, you know, I'm like two generations away from poverty, one generation away from being 150% below the poverty level. Mm. Right? which is why I was able to access college access and retention programs like Talent Search, Upward Bound, um, and, and, you know, two generations from being illiterate. I mean, I just, when I think about, you know, like how crazy that is, that the decision that my father made 
you know, to come to the United States in 1968 and the decision that my mother, who never wanted to come to the United States, made to follow him in 1971, you know, was something that um, that I think about a lot. And I think it really influenced I really made my parents goals of going to Colombia kind of part of my dream. Um, I obviously didn't make it to Columbia as an undergrad, which devastated me. So on the day that I was rejected from Columbia University, I got an acceptance to Brandeis University, which is um, a predominantly white Jewish institution. I shouldn't say it was Jewish. So it was founded by Jewish scholars and people because Jewish people were denied from admissions from Columbia, from Harvard, et cetera. So Brandeis University established the university in 1948. Um, I, because I went to high school and for those who are from New York, um, I, you know, I went to Brooklyn Tech High School, which is one of, at the time was one of the three specialized science high schools in New York City. I was always identified as a smart kid, even when I was in um, elementary school. So I was pushed to do a lot of the sciences. The sciences were really my thing. I was like really did really well in science and math. You know, I went to Brooklyn Tech. I was immediately shuffled into this program called the Gateway Program, which um, out of 1000 freshman students, 50 students were selected to be part of a pre-med program. So like right, right at the right as, as as soon as I got to Brooklyn Tech, I was taking biology, chemistry, to the point where I was taking AP Bio, AP Chemistry, AP Physics. I didn't take AP Humanities. Um, it was all a really heavy science background. So I was, you know, determined I'm going to become, uh, you know, a doctor, like a medical doctor. Um, so I I applied to Brandeis University because I was told they give you great financial aid. And they're very good for the sciences. So I made it part of my list. But so I was heartbroken when Columbia, when Columbia denied me, I could not even walk to 116th Street anymore. Oh, no. It was, my, <laughs> it was I always say that's my official first heartbreak. Um, but my counselors at my, um, in my, um, in my talent search, and Upward Bound program, um, I'll never forget Miss Marsha, she sat me down and she was like, so where are you going to go next year? And I said to her, I was like, I don't know, but I'm not going anywhere. I'm not <laughs> doing this anymore. And she was like, you know, she, and I said to her, I'm like, if it's not Columbia, I don't know if I want to go to Brandeis. Like, I, I just really don't know. And she was like, you know, God dreams a bigger dream for you. And she was like, and you don't know if Columbia is going to be in your, in your future. And I was like, how? Because at the time, I only knew bachelor's degree. That was it. That's it. That's my life. Like, what else right. do I do? Right? Like, I had no idea. We, you know, I was in those programs, but it wasn't like we we knew about a master's degree. We knew about like a, a doctorate, right? So anyway, I was like, you know what? Let me go to Brandeis University. They're going to pay for most of my um, my tuition. It's a way. It'll be my time to get away from New York, maybe learn something new. Horrible, hated it, you know, <laughs> when I attended uh, Brandeis University, race, ethnicity and class was so salient. Like I was immediately like if there's any time that, you know, like you go to a place like Brandeis, like you people definitely know you're not white. Right. Um, 
you know, we were all lumped in the same boat. Like we were all the faces of the bottom of that well. Uh, and, you know, it was, they didn't even know what Latino was. Like, oh, and I would say, so, so I will say that when I first got to Brandeis, it was in 1994, Hispanic and Latino were not like terms that we used um, very much. Like in my neighborhood, you were Dominican, you were Puerto Rican, you were Ecuadorian, you know, you were all of the, you were Haitian, but there was nothing like, oh, we're Latino, we're Hispanic, right? It was when we got to Brandeis that we were like, oh shit, we're in the same boat together. Like, <laughs> what do we call ourselves, right? Um, and so when I started saying, you know, when, when I started saying I'm Ecuadorian, people were like, what the hell is that? Even the Latino folks. Mm -hmm. you know? And when I said I was Latina, or Hispanic, the white folks were like, what is that? And the folks who did know were like, oh, Rosie Perez. So then I was called Rosie Perez on campus. Yes, mm. it, was, it was really something because I mm. had, I struggled with between hating being called Rosie Perez and desiring, like not wanting to hate her at the same time. You know, because I knew what they were trying to do by calling me that they were not saying it was a positive thing. They were saying I had a funny accent. They were saying that I looked different. They were saying all of these things. But I fought every day to make it a positive for me to the point where every time somebody said something like, oh, you're here on affirmative action. I was like, yes, I am. And, you know, every time somebody would say something that they meant to hurt me with. I was just like, yep. And what are you going to do about it? So I had no other way in college to really, I mean, who gave us that kind of education, right? To understand Latinidad, to understand racialization. You know, it was just, I was unable to articulate those experiences, you know, let alone how to address them. So I wanted to fight like every day I wanted to fight. Right. So out the window mm. went my science background. Out the window, I was, you know, like these were classes. I had used the same textbooks that I used in my high school classes. I used in those science classes, but I failed them. I was just not into it anymore. My brain was distracted. I was like, where the hell am I? Why is this happening? Right. Um, it just like classes that should have been familiar were foggy all of a sudden. And my focus was on why I was being called Rosie Perez. Why the cross on my neck that my mom gave me a scapulary to protect me, why that cross was so, was something that made other people feel uncomfortable on that campus. Um, and even amongst, you know, the Latino folks, like, they didn't understand why I was so angry, right? Even when people were like, yo, you're angry. I'm like, yes, I am. You should be too. Like, I really like had to learn to develop those, you know, that arsenal of responses, you know, sort of what um, Daniel Solorzano calls, right? In terms of microaggressions. But I developed that arsenal, but I didn't have a way to really speak on it, like describe my experiences um, until like my junior year, right? So my junior year in college, it was 1997. I'll never forget. Um, there was an administrator. He was he was assistant dean of student life, uh, Nathaniel Mays, Dr. Nathaniel Mays, and he's walking around the cafeteria, and I'm, you know, like 
sitting there with my friends and my friends and I are talking about the racism we were experiencing at Brandeis. And he just kind of like, you know, it's like over us. And he's like, so what are we going to do about this? He said, what are we going to do about this? He didn't say, what are you going to do about this? Like other administrators were saying, he was saying, what are we going to do about this? And I, with my big mouth was like nothing because nobody's paying me. (laughs) (laughs) He said, well, what if I told you, he's like, what if I told you that you can get paid to do some of this work? Mm. They were looking for um, somebody to run their orientation program for students of color. So at the time we had a huge orientation program. There were nine students who were coordinating different parts and they couldn't find somebody to run the, the program for students of color. That program doesn't exist anymore. We're trying to bring it back. Um, they keep calling us to like help out with their stuff at Brandeis. Um, but I was like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to hang out at the Brandeis University campus for another, like, some, I'm not doing it. Um, but he kept talking to me about it. And I was like, you know what? Why not? Let's try it. Around the same time, I was having fights with the Latino organization, the student organization named Daora. They were having, you know, they were having their, you know, what I call celebratory functions, right? There was a lot of parties. There was a lot of like, let's dance salsa, let's eat salsa kind of parties, right? And I was like, talked to Dr. Nathaniel Mays and was like, you know, can you help me with help, you know, trying to figure this out? Because I don't like the activities they're doing. He was like, well, then maybe you should become president. I was like, hell no, I'm not going to become president of that organization. You know, I'm not doing it. Like, that's embarrassing. Hell no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. He was like, well, then there's no other way. You you know, if you want it, because I was like, well, maybe we could do something like Hispanic Heritage Month, which was very new at the time. And Brandeis never had something like that. And I was like, and then we could do discussions and panels. He was like, well, then you're going to have to be president because it's going to look crazy. You doing Hispanic Heritage Month over there and them doing Latino student organization stuff over here. So I brought the idea. I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to bring the idea back to Aora, the student organization. They said no. So I got up and I was like, well, then I'm going to do Hispanic Heritage Month somewhere else. <laughs> and I had students who came after me and they were like, we want to do that idea too. Um, and so they put me on the ballot. I became president of the Latino student organization. And that summer I knew that I needed the resources that I was going to get from the orientation program to now share that with this first Latino Heritage Month. That again was my first real experience with hmm, resource deprivation and the way that resources are allocated along the lines of race, right? which I didn't know at the time, right? In 1997 was Eduardo Bonilla Silva's seminal piece on racialized um, social systems. So his theory of racialized social systems brought together these ideas of how we allocate resources along the lines of race. I had no idea that this piece was being written. You know, I was a junior in college, but here I was really like grappling with these things. Like I was literally bringing whatever resources I found and that I received training, all of that into, you know, from orientation because they were very well-funded, very well-resourced, very well-planned to a student organization that was neglected, that was only focusing on parties at the time, um, 
you know, and, and that I, that we only, you know, I had to fight for a budget that was, I believe, $2,000 at the time to run a whole month, right, of activities. I was like, I got to do this, you know, but it was really, um, it was just interesting that I, in those moments, realized that what I wanted to do was continue my work around race, but also support students who look like me, who were like me, who came from environments like I did to survive places like Brandeis University. I did not want to leave those students alone. Um, and, and that really became my, um, where I really nurtured some of those ideas of wanting to be in higher ed, but not knowing that I could get a master's degree, not knowing that I could get a doctorate. That didn't really come along until, um, you know, I, I think 2002. So I graduated in 1998 from Brandeis. And in 2002, I entered into a master's program um, at NYU in higher ed. And there they were like, you need more than two years. You should really enter a doctoral program. Um, and that's, that's how, that's how it all began. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were always being critical of things. Right. And, and very observant, obviously you're like, no, I see what it is. Right. <laughs> I can see what's going on here. Right. Um, as I listen to your story, I'm like, you know, the researcher in me, I'm like coding everything, yep. like the pre-college experiences. And then you got to campus and then it was like this awakening, right? Of like, oh my gosh, this place is terrible. Um, and then part of me, you know, the HSI scholar in me wants you to tell me a story about how you went to an HSI and it was amazing, but I already know you're not going to tell me that story, but you know, we'll get to that <laughs> because, you know, we know HSIs are not those spaces yet, but I, when I I hear your story I'm like that's what I dream about right is like when HS yeah. that HSI will make it so nobody ever experiences that again right exactly what you said right which many of us have experienced right that that feeling of like this is not it this is not this is not what I imagined it was going to be um so let's let's hear about your servingness story I call it your servingness journey right like how did you come to understand what an HSI was because you you very clearly came to understand what it was like to be in a pro predominantly white space particularly right. as a person of color um how did you learn about HSIs and and how did that come into your consciousness you know that is also, um, for me, it was a relatively new concept until about maybe 2006, 2007. Um, I was a doctoral student for sure. And I was also working in a predominantly white liberal arts college in New York. Um, but I worked um, within that college, which at one point actually had over 43% students of color. This was before I got there. So the history of that institution was that it did you know, it did serve the community. Um, and, and I remember like my cousins going there to take art classes, for example, because it was, uh, you know, heavy, um, uh, fo heavily focused on theater, dance, art. Um, so when I was there, I was director of a college access and retention program called HEOP, the Higher Education Opportunity Program. And the majority of the students who were in that program were, were Latinx, right? Um, and they were folks who, you know, um, who were from similar backgrounds that I came from, you know, low income. Um, a lot of the students that I worked with were Dominican. Um, and so our program was highlighted often as a program that served Latino students. Um, and that very proudly served Latino students because their director was Latina, right? Um, and so, you know, 
I, it, it was something that I was like, hmm, kind of like what you were saying, you know, what would that kind of institution look like? I already knew what a program like that could look like because we did it. We were doing it. We did it for eight years, right? We were this program that served the majority Black and Latino um, uh, students, you know, in a predominantly white institutions. So that's really the idea of spaces where that came from for me. You know, I do a lot of work around black spaces today in, in minority serving institutions and Hispanic serving institutions. But this idea of like what that might look like, right, for, you know, what, what would it look like for Latin, Latino students to be happy, to be successful at any institution um, was really driven there. And then, um, you know, that was until 2014. And then I applied for, I, you know, I finished my doctoral program in 2015 at Teachers College, Columbia University. Um, and then in 2016, um, I was nine months pregnant, called into a job talk at Montclair State University. Um, and, and fun fact, I never made it to that job talk because I literally, Miguel decided to come to he wanted to come to my job talk. So, oh. <laughs> so the day of my job talk, I had to go to the hospital and deliver him early because, um, yeah, because he was just, he was ready. Um, mm. So they waited for, um, I think I was about three, two or three weeks postpartum. I finally did the job talk. Um, and one of the questions, and, and, and it was something that they were very proud of, you know, in 2016, Montclair State University was recently designated a Hispanic serving institution, you know, and, and you know, I had um, read some of your work at that point, I knew some of the work that you were trying to do, when, you know, in, 20, um, in 2016, 2015. Um, and, you know, I, you know, but I didn't, again, like, I, I was very not knowledgeable you know, um, not many of us were, right? Um, it was quite a time because, you know, there were all these institutions that were like, yeah, we just became a Hispanic serving institution. And then it was like, yeah, where are all the Latinos? Like, <laughs> right? So I was like, so they, they um, specifically asked me a question about my, my dissertation research where I did, um, uh, you know, my research at an, as a Hispanic, I'm sorry, a predominantly um, white institution and a minority serving institution that was also a Hispanic serving institution. And, um, and so they were really interested in what I found in terms of racial conflict, right, at this Hispanic serving institution. Um, and what I, you know, what I talked about you know, was that, you know, students perceived, you know, Black students, Black faculty, um, Black administrators really perceived the structural forms of racial conflict, unlike at the um, predominantly white institution where they were encountering more interpersonal forms of conflict. So interpersonal forms of conflict, I mean, microaggressions, hate speech, um, you know, hate crimes, those are interpersonal. At the uh, minority serving institution, at a Hispanic serving institution, they were experiencing more structural forms, right? They were experiencing, you know, um, in, encounters with the police. Why was there such a police presence on this campus versus, you know, the white institution that was, you know, uh, you know, a few blocks away or something? Um, they were experiencing lack of uh, black faculty, right? Black faculty were being, they were leaving. Um, their, their black studies department at the time was not funded. And so it was defunct, you know, and and um, and a student center was being taken away at the time. 
that primarily served black students. Um, so all of that was like this resource deprivation, right? It wasn't just, re so we talk about a lot about allocating resources when it comes to racialization and processes, right? But we don't talk about deprivation, which I think we need to start talking about when it comes to not just Hispanic serving institutions, but all institutions. How are we depriving the resources? Because what the students and, and the other respondents did not know at the time, which I you know ended up documenting, was that for the last seven years, that was between maybe 2006 and 2015, 2013, 2015 was when I did the research, you know, um, their black student population had dwindled about 10%, right? And their um, Latino and Asian student population was fastly increasing, like it was just increasing during that time. Right, so they were proudly calling themselves a minority serving institution, proudly calling themselves a Hispanic serving institution, but their black student population was dwindling. But their black studies department had no money, but their black student center was being taken away. And so these students were feeling like, we, we can't, what's next, right? Was what one of my respondents said was what's next? I'm supposed to be here. I came to this institution because I thought they would take care of me because they said they were a minority serving institution because they said they were a Hispanic serving institution. Then I come here and the black students are being neglected. So when are we gonna talk about serving this amongst black students at Hispanic serving institutions, right? Yep, absolutely. And that's, you know, again, it's something that I, um, you know, I was grateful that Montclair State decided, you know, to offer me a job because when I have said that at other institutions, they were like, yeah, peace. <laughs> mm, they're like, uh-oh, we see what's going to happen. <laughs> right. If she, if she comes. <laughs> well, because I wasn't necessarily like, oh, we got to do this for the Latino folks. No, no, no. Institution. I was just like, but have you, have you taken some notes on what's going on with your Black student population? Because just because we're a Hispanic serving institution doesn't mean that there's harmony here, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And it's not to say they're not doing some of the work, right? It's just saying that we need to do a little bit more. And this is what the paper sort of brings about is sort of this intersectionality mm -hmm. to organizations um, in the way that we can't, we, in a way that's much different than at predominantly white institutions. Absolutely. Oh, I have so many questions. Ooh, this is where it starts to get fun when we talk in the HSI stuff. Um, the idea of like us not talking about black students at HSI, that's that's huge. Um, and, and people are concerned about that. When I yeah. you know give talks or I work with HSIs, um, I often get that question. And often from black people are like, what does this mean for us? <laughs> right? Like if we if we are doing this HSI thing, I'm all for it, right? And there's often this like, I'm for it. I'm I'm for solidarity. I'm for us doing this work collectively. But usually there's this feeling that there, that everybody else isn't for it, right? And particularly that nobody wants to include Black people in those sort of conversations, right? Despite the fact that Black folks generally include other folks. Um, and so the race-based conflict, um, you know, stream of your of your of your research, I, I'm fascinated because I, I think that we need to learn more about that. So for the listeners that are having those exact conversations on their campus, the HSI, um, tell us a little bit about more about, you know, some of your, your findings around race-based conflict in minority serving um, spaces and like, you know, what can we, what can we learn from, from, from what you learned and, or how do we address that race-based conflict? Cause it is real. Yeah. In HSIs. Yeah. 
So, you know, just just to give you a little bit of background, um, I originally grounded my work on organizational conflict theory, right? Um, and sort of those disagreements, policy and practice disagreements that exist um, within um, institutions that cause discord, whether um, individually, so like within myself, like am I, am I crazy? You know, am I thinking that, you know, am I thinking too much into this? the interpersonal, which is now, you know, like the intergroup, right, stuff, right, the, you know, so the microaggressions, the hate speech, um, you know, the intergroup conflicts that could exist, what my paper in, um, you know, in Teachers College record shows, um, you know, in terms of the administrators, you know, against students, right, so students and administrators being these groups that now are in conflict, um, you know, that, that's race-based, um, and so I, I looked at those levels and, uh, and for the ARA open paper, um, you know, really looked at how, you know, what racial, how this, what would this look like in, in racialized organizations? So race-based organizational conflicts are really those um, that discord, you know, those policy disagreements, those um, practice, those practices that are racialized that cause um, conflict, right, within an organization. So a big, you know, a huge example, which I think you've been trying to um, solve forever, right, is this idea of how do we call ourselves Hispanic serving when we're not serving, right? That's an example of an organizational process conflict, right, that, that is race-based, that is ethnicity-based, um, you know, that, that we haven't been able to necessarily resolve yet, right? Um, you know, again, another uh, one that I've been that I've been kind of hammering in, in in my in my work has been this idea of resource deprivation. So um, which populations within these institutions, within Hispanic serving institutions, um, more, most recently in my work, you know, which populations are, you know, being deprived of resources, not just that they're not being allocated, but literally deprived, right? Like, are the Black student population dwindling? Do we not have Black professors? Are we choosing the Latino professors over the Black professors? If so, why? Um, are we ignoring the Afro-Latino students and sort of elevating their Latinidad, but not offering them, you know, uh, um, you know uh, culturally relevant pedagogy, right? Um, you know, it, it's, so those are conflicts. Those are where I'm talking about the organizational conflicts, right? That we would normally just kind of say, oh, those are organizational conflicts, right? Like, but, but that they produce, um, uh, racialized outcomes, right? That I think again, that, um, that I'm trying to really push for in my, in my articles, sometimes successfully, sometimes not maybe, um, because it's hard, I think, for folks to, to think about racial conflict in terms of organizations. A lot of us have been focusing on, again, the racial microaggressions. We've been focusing on, you know, um, hate crimes, hate speech. And those are important aspects. Those are, you know, that's, that's conflict as well. But what about the organizations, right? What about our society? Can we learn, you know, from these conflicts that would inform those microaggressions? Right, that would that would continue to maintain that hate speech. Right, one of those organizational conflicts that I think you know is race based. You know, is is the First Amendment, the protection of freedom of you know of speech, 
even when it hurts, you know, students of color. That's a huge organizational conflict that we have to resolve and that we can't resolve legally. You know, like uh, Liliana Garces wrote um, in 2021, the paper about this, you know, about how hate speech, you know, is hard to, for administrators to handle and to address because of this First Amendment. That's a type of organizational conflict that is race-based, but that most people wouldn't look at it as such. That is race-based because they don't, they don't study the racialized outcomes, which I think more people are starting to do, but they're not naming it as a conflict. They're not naming it as an organizational conflict um, that, that produces racialized outcomes. And I think that's the piece that um, a lot of theories around racialized social systems, you know, big up to, you know, to Eduardo Bonilla Silva, racialized organizations. You know, shout out to Victor Ray, you know, for doing that work. But a lot of this work is missing how to study conflict. And that's what I'm trying to do. And I think it's really, for me, it's been helpful to do this in, in the HSI setting um, because it felt, you know, it was like we, we see the we see the microaggressions and, you know, the, the hate speech and the hate crimes. We see the interpersonal um, types of conflict at um, historically white institutions so clearly. But if we look at the Hispanic serving institutions, those are the institutions that really can, you know, have less of those um, types of incidents, but more of the structural kind. And that's something that I think that needs more, more work. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for explaining that. Because I think when you say conflict, like it's a, like, I know my brain immediately goes to like interpersonal conflict, right? Between people. But what you're talking about is like, no, these like larger tensions within the organization that are racialized, right? Like, and that we often, and that's those, those are those things people have trouble putting their finger on, right? They're like, I, I can't feel it. I don't fully understand what you're talking about, right? Which I'm you sure know, is what you found. Yeah. <laughs> and you know who does a really good job at doing that is Whitney Pirtle, a sociologist. Right. But she is, but she, um, you see, uh, Merced. No, yeah, you see Merced. Yes, she does a wonderful job, um, talking about, you know, how anti blackness pervades Hispanic serving institutions, how those processes, how ideologies really help inform those interpersonal relationships, Mm -hmm. right? Um, in, in the, the article that I wrote in 2019 really talks about the resource deprivation and, um, I don't talk about ideologies in that piece, but I really dig into some of the organizational processes, but then she brings in the ideologies, how those ideologies inform conflict, right. Um, and how they, they, they maintain conflict between students and administrators at HSIs which is how that ARA opened like that, you know, it was, it was just like, wait, this is what we're experiencing at these HSIs as, you know, um, you know, Latina, Latino uh, researchers and students, my co-authors and I, um, Roman Liera and and Mildred Boveda, um, how we were thinking about this paper, because we were like, this goes beyond the processes, but we were, you know, like, this is really about ideologies, how, we were all experiencing a form of anti-Blackness, but it wasn't specifically anti-Blackness, right? It was a derivative of it. That was the blancamiento process. That was the mestizaje process. That's what we were naming um, as part of this group of anti-Black ideologies that had been informing us for centuries, right? It's in our blood memory at this point. It's the way that 
um, societies have, you know, uh, created bodies that look like mine, right? That mm. literally, like, you know, light skin have some other features, you know, that are not white, um, you know, but they literally create, like, when you think about the ways that we, as our bodies have been informed by Blancamiento, that mm-hmm. our bodies and our societies have been informed by mestizaje, right? That, you know, at some point you're like, yo, like we, the, I get that it was an act of survival too, but we are mm-hmm. literally the embodiment of these ideologies that we have to fight every day against. Otherwise we become um, subsumed by these ideologies, right? Which is where we were trying to kind of say, this is the danger of mestizaje. Mm-hmm. It makes us all go back to that melting pot, salad bowl type of ideology. This is the danger of blancamiento. It will literally create a new body to maintain the white supremacist societies that existed in Latin America. And we're using Hispanic serving institutions to preserve those ideologies. So how do we disrupt that? Right? Right. First, we have to name it. We have to name it. Right. We can't just call it anti-Black. We have to call it what it was, you know, in these Latin American societies. Right. There's specific type of anti-Blackness. There's blancamiento and there's mestizaje that we have in our DNA. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. But if it's in our DNA, how can it not be in the DNA of HSIs? Yeah, it absolutely is. And I think that's what the article really, really gets at. I'll go ahead and and, and plug the name now for the listeners, which, and we'll drop it in the show notes, the Hispanic Serving Institutions as Racialized Organizations, Elevating Intersectional Consciousness to Reframe the H and HSI, which was, as you have mentioned, published in our AERA Open um, Special Topic Collection. Um, so tell us a little bit, like, as you said, we can't really disrupt it until we I, we name it, right? And you you and your um, co-authors, y'all, y'all, you you name it very beautifully um, through your own testimonials, right? Like very much like tell us the, your stories. You tell us this is our stories, and then attach it to an, a racialized organization theory, right? Victor Ray's organizational theory, which was really powerful, by the way. I was just like very, I loved it, right? That you're like these are our stories, and here's how we're gonna talk to it at this organizational level. So that's what, um, you know, anyone who's listening that like they're at that HSI that's trying to figure out how do I be better? How do I disrupt the mestizaje mentality, the mestizaje that's in the DNA or the, or the blanqueamiento? How do I, how do we, how do we disrupt that? So what do we, what do we learn from it? And what do we do in practice um, with your article? Yeah, that, you know, that's something that I think we have to also do more work on is how do we now bring these ideologies to the ground, right? Mm-hmm. What does, like you said, look like in practice? Um, and that part was really, was was actually difficult, I think, for us to really hone in, figure out. Um, and, and we we started um, thinking about the ways that intersectionality, theories of intersectionality really help us disrupt some of this panethnic um effects right so the effects of panethnicity which is to have you know some of the same people at the table but calling it diverse because 
you know, they happen to be called Hispanic, right? Which then like we, um, it's kind of like what I call the mestizaje 2.0, right? We have this new um, understanding or, or it's, you know, kind of easy to digest this diversity because they're Latino. And so therefore they should know better. Um, and, you know, we, and it's fine, right? Like we got this racial harmony now. And what our experiences, you know, as both researchers and students at HSIs, you know, really, really helped us understand is that uh, the needs, you know, and I would say that a lot of your, uh, the, a lot of the articles in that special issue, you know, were really important in helping shed light on some of these things. Um, you know, is that I, you know, I think I lost my train of thought, but I, because I was thinking about um, one of the um, articles that I read in your special issue, you know, where mestizaje was um, was informing practitioners ideas of, you know, um, um, programming, for example, right? Um, and we encountered that as researchers, we encountered that as students at, at HSIs, you know, where people had this idea that they were doing a good thing, right? Because they're promoting, you know, work and, 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 you know, curriculum around Latinos, but then only focusing on one type of Latino, right? Or funneling- Ch Chicanos. <laughs> Chicanos is probably the article you're, that I'm thinking of. Yeah. Right. Like one type. Often. One type, right. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. that, and then negating the idea that mm -hmm. some of us don't identify that way. Yeah. But being yeah. forced to socialize into a Latinidad that mm -hmm. was, you know, that was- what like how many countries are there i mean not all of us speak spanish either right mm -hmm. so then this idea that oh latino heritage month has to have like the theme in spanish okay i get it like you know we most of us speak spanish but not all of us do and especially those folks who come you know who are coming to new york from mexico a lot of these people are not speaking spanish they have mm -hmm. their own languages right mm -hmm. that, that we still have yet to grapple with um, but that I think K through 12 institutions are are um, are really trying to figure out as well, because they're starting to realize, you know, maybe my curriculum shouldn't just be Spanish and English. That's not mm -hmm. what these folks need. Um, so what we were trying to offer was, you know, bringing people to the table, you know, who understood um, uh, policies and practices around blancamiento who got, you know, ideas of mestizaje. It's not just any Latino, but folks who were experts in these areas to then help inform some of these practices and policies. You know, we also, you know, we typically in universities, and you know this being a higher ed scholar, but, um, but student leaders typically are picked over and over again. The same student leaders are picked over and over again to do the same kind of work. Right. Mm -hmm. Which then leads to, you know, the same kind of ideas. Right. That and, and what what happened to me when I was in college was I was literally tapped. I was I was not known in the university as, you know, an activist. I was the kid who was in the cafeteria complaining with the rest of my peers about how racist the institution I was in was. But I wasn't a leader. Like I was right. literally tapped and that's what we have to, we have to learn how to bring those folks to the table or go to them. Like what happened to me, like this administrator literally walked over to me and said, maybe this is what you need to be doing. I would never have done any of those things had somebody 
you know, had had there been a, a little flyer on the wall that said, come do this X, Y, and Z thing, come help us with that. I was like, no, that's whack. I'm not mm-hmm. doing it. Right. So that's what we were hoping to do with in terms of implications and, and suggestions was, you know, really, really at the end of the day, it's building community with people who you wouldn't typically build community with. Mm-hmm. Bringing, you know, together scholars and practitioners who understand Blancamiento, who understand Mestizaje, who understand, you know, who, who get the ideas of anti-Blackness, right, in, in their programming. You know, how do we get those folks to help us think about these things in a different way? And, you know, and, and also, you know, really review our, you know, it's, you know, really review the structural diversity of, of these institutions, but but really think about, like, are my black students dwindling? Mm-hmm. Right? Are are we only getting one type of Latino? And why is that? You know, because those are going to be the folks who inform a new cadre of, of student leaders, right? If we if, if we're not noticing, we're supposed to be Hispanic serving institution, which means that we're not just supposed to be serving Latinos, right? We're supposed to be, we're a minority serving institution. We're supposed to be serving minoritized students but we're neglecting our black students, right? How do we, so then how, how are we reflecting on the numbers, right? Structural diversity is important and we know that it's not enough, but it's important. And we need to, we need to stop calling thing, you know, populations diverse when one um, part of that diverse population is dwindling or that they're not in leadership positions, right? Or that we're not offering them, you know, support. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing is we have to stop, you know, we have to be real about those perceptions. There's perceptions that feel very real, but that are not very real. So one example is, you know, um, perceptions that Latino students are doing great at Hispanic serving institutions because they're, you know, it's a racial harmony. And what we're saying is, you know, um, that that may not necessarily be true if you're not talking to you know different types of Latinos, right? If you're talking to the same group of students, we're gonna tell you the same type of thing, but not talking to the kid in the cafeteria, you know, who's never in those, you know, in those meetings, you might never know what exactly how that Hispanic serving institution is really serving them, right? Um, so I think I think that it's important to really to really think critically about who we have, you know, on that campus, really review admissions numbers, um, you know, really think about what do we mean by diversity, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of diversity policies, but they don't necessarily address racial conflict, for example, right? We have a lot of diversity programming, but are those, but is that programming really helping us, you know, talk about these conflicts openly and and, you know, like, not be fearful of talking about conflict. For those of us who are critical students of critical race theory, we know racism is permanent. As a student of organizational conflict theory, conflict is permanent. These two things go hand in hand. So there's, you know, I, we have to be comfortable with conflict and to have those conversations at HSIs about how are our Asian students doing? How are our Black students doing? How are Native American students doing? Do we have any Native American students? Right, right. Right? <laughs> and I'm talking about Native American students too, you know, from Mexico and from Ecuador and from all, you know, from Guatemala. Like, you know, like, how are they doing? 
because they may not, they don't think that, they may not think that they're Latino. They may want to find solace with us because they think that, that we're going to do right by them. And then when we don't, what's going to happen? Like my, you know, my, um, I, I share that in the article, the ARA Open article, you know, about the student who, you know, described herself as Afro-Latina, um, but was not really welcomed by the Latino organizations. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so she, you know, was more, she she ran the black student organization. She was nurtured and she was protected in the black student organizations because the Latino organizations did not consider her Latina. They didn't reach out to her. Right. right? So how are our Latino student organizations um, perpetuating um, understandings of Latinidad in our institutions is another way that we need to, um, that is that's like more practical, right? Like what are the dominant ideologies that Latino student organizations are pushing in their programming that are pushing, you know, in, in their leadership? Um, and how are we, you know, instead of pr- as practitioners sometimes, and I know this because I, you know, I was a practitioner at one point, but we're like, you know, students need to do it on their own. They can learn on their own. And that's not true. Mm-hmm. Right. We need to, every one of us needs support. My students teach me a lot. And my hope is that I teach my students a lot. And that's the way that I see student leadership is that they need to they need to figure out with us what this big Latinidad, you know, process looks like. How are we either disrupting or maintaining it? You know, and and without critical. Critical knowledge of you know, ideologies like anti-Blackness, like, you know, blancamiento, like mestizaje, you know, we're, we're running danger of, of maintaining a status quo that is a mestizaje 2.0. The main, that we don't think is white supremacist, but is certainly anti-Black. Right. <laughs> it's just called by a different name. It's just called Latino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, thank you for that. You are just... It's getting me to just think about so many different dimensions about even how we, yeah, the programming that we offer on campus, right? If it's if it's uh, it, from a monolithic uh, approach or the uh, the curriculum or the support or even who's represented in those Latino organizations, right? Like all of that is serving this, and we think we're doing good, right? We're like, oh, look, we have all these Latino themes, and it's like it's not Latino things, it's fill in the blank one type of ethnic Latino, right? And I, I use Chicano as the example, right? Because it, it a lot of our, you know, early research, even my own research, that was the fill in the blank, right? Or Mexican-American, right? Um, and there's 20 other ethnicities within that that larger um, umbrella, right? Latino umbrella that like not necessarily, right? They're, and you know, the, this comes up on, you know, in um, research, I've been asked to do, in some discussions on, on, you know, and at conference presentations where I've seen researchers call their paper stuff about Latinos, but then like 15 out of their 20 participants are Chicanos. Right. <laughs> and, it's a, and I'm not using Chicano yeah. like that catch all term, but they literally yeah. identify. And I'm just like, yo, how are you calling this paper about how are you saying this is about Latinidad? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm okay with you saying that, but you got to tell me why, you know, and I get the people get mad at me all the time. They're like, well, you know, because now I don't want to fuck shit up, but maybe I have to, because I certainly don't fit in that in your findings as an Ecuadorian American from New York. Right. 
Like mm-hmm. you studied f- 15 Chicanos, five of them, one is Puerto Rican, one is Dominican, one is Ecuadorian, one is El Salvadorian, y la otra, you know, I don't know from where, but then <laughs> how do we, I, I'm not going to relate to the Chicano in, and I'm not saying that I, I can't, I'm just saying that our experiences are mad different. You know what I mean? And until like, you know, I remember in, in about 1997, right? I was sent to a conference as a student and I forget, I think it was the um, Prop 209 that was being fought at the time. Right, California. And, and the students in California, I, re- I was so, I was like in awe of them because they were telling us, you know, it's coming to the East. Like mm-hmm. you, you guys are sitting comfortably now because it's not happening right now, but it's coming, you know, and now we have this fight on affirmative action. Right. And it's like, you know, I didn't have that experience when I was in middle school, like even in college, like we were fighting a different fight. We were fighting those microaggressions. We were fighting, you know, the ideas of, you know, of, of, um, uh, you know, faculty's lack of confidence in us. We were fighting institutional bias. We were fighting all of this, but we weren't fighting affirmative action because it wasn't happening in the state of Massachusetts. It wasn't happening in the state of New York, right? And so those state policies were really critical to understand as a student leader that I didn't have back then, but that I may have some context now, right? Um, It's state policies, you know, uh, are really important for, you know, when we talk about like, um, as a, as a practice, right. And, and how do we bring these ideologies to practice? But if we, you know, think about the ways that this country has really divided us, you know, in, in those specific terms, like, it wasn't like I, you know, didn't understand affirmative action. I knew what it was, but I didn't realize that that shit was coming home. I'm sorry to curse. I curse a lot. Mm -hmm. That's all good. (laughs) But, you know, like I, like I didn't realize that the fight was literally in California, right? Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with undocumented students now, which is some of the work that I, you know, that I began in 2006. But you know, when you think about the ways that Hispanic-serving institutions can support, you know, students, Latino students, you know, particularly, um, you know, places like New Jersey. In 2018, passed state financial aid for undocumented students. Why aren't our HSIs pushing that? Right. Why aren't we bring? Why aren't we elevating that? You know what that means? New Jersey loses over 50 percent of their students to other states for college. Right. We have a whole bunch of students, undocumented or not, who could use this benefit. We're not advertising it. You know what that also means? Programs like EOP, EOF in New Jersey can now offer those students support. Why aren't we doing more work around that? It's not to say that they're not doing individually. It's just that as a state, we're not doing that. Right? Is it because we don't know? Is it because we don't want those students? But why, as policy actors, HSI is not doing their due diligence to bring in those students now that we have the support. One of seven states, New Jersey, New York doesn't even have state financial aid for undocumented students. So as a Hispanic serving institution, it is our, you know, it's our job really 
to figure out what policies specifically serve Latinos, right? Undocumented students, the majority of undocumented students being Latinos, not all, but, but the majority, right? And how do we pr make sure that these students know that that service exists? How do we not, how do we not do that in those states that offer that, right? And then in states like, you know, I, I was doing some, I'm doing re more research on states that ban um, undocumented students and, you know, how folks there are supporting undocumented students. And what I found was that there is a lot of um, folks who are, you know, building scholarships to send undocumented students away. They can't even support their students in the state. Right. I don't know what Hispanic serving institutions exist in those states, but if, you know, if they exist, they can't do much. So what do they do? Maybe partner up with the HSI in another state and see if we could get those students there. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we partnering with HSIs in other states that are that that have you know more inclusive policies for undocumented students? To have more policies that that could serve you know Latino students in in, in particular ways, um, you know, his, uh, higher education and and student affairs professionals. You know, we're the street bureaucrats. We're the ones who are implementing these policies, but we don't see ourselves as policy actors because no one's telling us that we are until right. Blanca Vega tells them, of course. But, you know, but it's like, <laughs> we're not teaching our, our higher ed students, you know, how, you're a policy actor. What's your job as a policy actor now, as a, as a policy implementer? You work right. within the Hispanic serving institution. Now, how do we implement these policies that, are not being pushed by the institution, right? That are that are kind of, you know, kind of left quiet. It's just sitting there, mm -hmm. looking pretty. Yeah, right? for sure. Looking pretty for the state. <laughs> it's like you uh, answered all my questions. I didn't even ask them. <laughs> you uh, you answered like all the questions I have for you, but it was beautiful because you you it, you did exactly what I, I was hoping, right? Which was just share so much knowledge with us. The the policy piece is so important, right? And I knew you had done a lot of that work on um, with state level policy, and I think a lot about that is like how does state level policy either help or hinder servingness? And you you brought up something really important is that half the time HSIs aren't even thinking about it, right? It's like yo, this could really help you're serving this and you're not even thinking about it. Right. I always think about the hindering, right. I'm like, what policies hinder us from serving? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're right. There's policies that we could mm -hmm. elevate our servingness. And, and, and it sounds like in New Jersey, they're not even taking advantage of that. Right. To say like, this could help us. Right. Again, not saying that, you know, I haven't done all the, re uh, you know, I haven't gone to every institution, <laughs> there's no ad on it. You know, I don't, you know, right. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I don't see, you know, listservs, you know, on the mm. joint. So it's like, you know, I, I, but I, but do, but that I know that folks are on the ground, you know, trying to get stuff done. You know, my colleague and I, my colleague, he's in the sociology department. You know, we did um, a program in January, February um, around the role of higher ed and undocumented students in New Jersey. And we brought in, um, you know, a few experts to talk about the subject. And really, we, we wanted it to be intersectional, you know, like there were scholars who spoke about the Black undocumented student experience. We need to know that, you know, we spoke to student activists who were talking about like, why, how could, how could we even focus, right, another type of resource deprivation? How do we focus on our schoolwork 
when we have to think about how we're going to pay our tuition as undocumented folks, when we have to think about the messaging that Trump left behind about, you know, the, you know, criminality of undocumented folks, um, when we have, you know, higher ed leaders, you know, who are writing these beautiful statements about support for undocumented students, but literally in the same letter, and I'm hoping it gets published because it's under review right now, um, but in the same in the same statement, say we support border control. How do we do that? Mm. Right. You know, but then call ourselves an HSI, but then mm. call ourselves, you know, um, uh, inclusive and open. And, and you know, it, it, it like I, I just when we talk about like immigration, you know, it's not a Latino face. It shouldn't be a Latino face. But a lot of you're going to encounter a Latino. Yeah. Right. So how, again, like, how are we training our leaders to really think critically about, you know, themselves as policy actors, or at least our HSIs as policy actors, right? And if we're thinking about ourselves, if we're really honoring the fact, you know, that HSIs are policy actors within a racialized social system, then how are we then using that power to effectively allocate resources along the lines of race? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So all this stuff you're talking about, we are definitely going to drop in the show notes. Um, you've mentioned so many of your, your, you know, your articles, your teacher's college record, you know, we already have note to, to drop that. The, the lessons from an administrative closure, the curious case of black space at an MSI, which I read and loved in Frontiers in Education. I also love that you uh, named uh, the pseudonym was named after an Ecuadorian um, activist, right? And the, for the, for the, um, for the center, which is just great, right? Like that, that it's so authentic for you to bring your identity into all your, your research. Um, so we'll drop that in. I just downloaded the serving black communities at Hispanic serving institutions. Well, I had to request it from out about campus and I always request it. Cause I want, you know, I want you to get the downloads and whatnot. Um, so you're, you're doing great work and we'll drop all that in the show notes so people can, um, can, can follow along with the really great work that you're doing. Cause you're, you're, you're definitely doing good stuff. Um, but to finish the final question, and for some reason, it's always the hardest question for people. I don't know why you can go any which direction you want, but people come up because they, in, you know, they tune into the show because they want to know what's going on, what's happening, que pasa HSI. So with that, what would you say your final concluding thoughts on que pasa HSIs? Ooh. I have to say that when I read the title of your podcast, I was immediately transported back to que pasa USA. Mm-hmm. Yes. That show. Yes. Um, I'm sure that's where you know that you were yeah. inspired by it. Mm-hmm. And I remember that being one of the first shows in my childhood to really bring home that intergenerational Spanish English, you know, immigrants, non-immigrants, you know, U.S. born um, dynamics that could occur in a family, right? Um, and and, you know, when I think about your podcast and I think about like who you're inviting, right? And the fact that you were, you know, that I was invited, because sometimes I, like I said, people get mad when I talk about these things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, please come. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not typically the favorite when it comes <laughs> to these things, but, um, but, you know, that's what I think about that show. And I think I'm hoping that the podcast is the same thing where you're not afraid to um, talk about conflict. 
you're not afraid. You know, I, I really love how reading your stuff, like I know that you've grown in the work and then mm-hmm. thinking about these ideologies um, and it can't be easy. And I think that, again, something that I saw in that show and hopefully I'm going to you know, witness in your podcast, but that I'm literally like bearing witness to your growth as a scholar is that you're not afraid, you know, to be confronted, you know, by, you know, what we know and what we don't know and inviting people to say, what do you know that I can learn from? Right. Um, and so I think in the spirit of the show, in the spirit of the old show, right, I think you're really bringing this to, you know, to uh, a community of folks who really need this nuanced understanding of, of Hispanic, Latino. I think we're in a lot of conversations I see on Twitter. I'm not on as much on social media as I used to be, but these, these really like you know, almost basic conversations, you know, about who Latinos are, what we're doing, um, and then how these institutions like HSIs either maintain or disrupt that, you know, is super important. So I'm happy to hear and to know and to be part of now of this podcast where my hope is that we can disrupt some of those ways that institutions like HSIs have traditionally maintained, but hopefully will now disrupt some of our white supremacist understandings of Latinidad. That was the most affirming response I've gotten so far. So thank you for that. Thank you for the beautiful response and and for the acknowledgement of of the work. Um, I absolutely am trying to complicate what we're thinking about and what we're learning. And I don't know a lot. There's a lot I don't know. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today and with me. Um, and, And thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you for having me.